Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. This is the Investor Coaching Show. Talking about money and investing, financial planning, retirement planning, talking about questions that I think that you ought to be able to answer as an investor. They're not terribly daunting, but I mean, think about it. You're investing in the market. Shouldn't you kind of know a little bit about how it works, where returns come from, how to measure risk, how to know if the risk of your portfolio is in line with where you are as an investor and what type of risks that you can take, probably fairly important. Shouldn't you know whether the method being used to manage the money has an academic basis or whether maybe it was just based on some kind of a sales brochure? (laughs) It seems like it's a fairly important thing to know. But yet these aren't questions that people typically ask or know to ask when they're getting advice. They don't know anything about maturities of the, the bond portfolio, how much risk that they're taking. Don't you think that the Silicon Valley Bank people might have just wanted to know a little bit about the risk in the bond portfolios? Well, that's the one thing we didn't really hit on. We kind of skirted against it was the bond portfolio. And, and okay. we talked about the banks failing because of their overinvestment and things like long-term bonds. And it's specifically why we typically stay away from stuff like mm-hmm. that. We want shorter-term, higher quality that tends to go up, not always, but tends to go up when markets go down. When they have those big downturns. Yeah, like your, your huge downturn 20, uh, 2002 and 2008. Yeah, That's what provides the diversification. It's, uh, you know, the long-term bonds historically have better returns, but they also have historically Mm -hmm. much, much higher volatility. You have those bonds in your portfolio because you're trying to reduce your volatility. Yeah. If you want the returns, well, you invest all in stocks, but you got to deal with the long-term volatility for for extended periods of time. Right. And, and, And the reason that people get pulled into the other types of bonds is simply because they think, well, I'm supposed to get higher returns, aren't I? Well, yeah, that is the idea of investing in general is we want higher returns if we can get them, but that's not where we get them in the bonds. But we're sold this idea that you can have, well, you know, returns without risk, and that's where we're going to get it. We're going to get it in the bond portfolio. No, you can get higher returns in bonds, um, high-yield bonds. That's why they sell, you know, because they, they pay high yields, higher returns. And, you know, what ends up happening is people jump into those things and then all of a sudden recession hits and, you know, maybe a company falls on hard times and then they can't repay their debt. And then those high-yield bonds uh, end up being high-loss bonds. Well, yeah, you, you look at 2008 and people were literally just shocked when some of those high-yield bonds funds were going down as much as the stocks were. And that was what they thought was there to protect them, to provide security. Right. And some of the numbers from that year were just shocking. Yeah, it is bad. Now, so another thing is that, you know, when we're talking about all this stuff, this is what we're talking about here is coaching, educating. And these are the things I think you ought to know. But where do people get information? Do they get it from people coaching and educating or do they get information from someplace else? Mark Witz had something to say about this as well. So check this out, what he says right here. I think it's really good. You know, this uh, conflicted research is obviously a, a sad thing for our in, our industry. 
So uh, beware of somebody who gives you advice and sells you, uh, you know, and sells you. Uh, don't don't get your weather forecast from the umbrella salesman. Yeah, he talks he talks about conflicted research, and you know, this is I think he's really I think he's going back a little ways on this particular quote right here. Markowitz is because. I remember when I first started this company and I first started the radio show, there was a guy named Andy Kessler and he did a book called Wall Street Meat. And what he talked about there was how people are doing research on companies. And on the one hand, he's telling people, you need to buy this stock. And on the other hand, he's telling people, get out of it. You know, they're, they're, and, and I'm talking about, there were different people, Mary Meeker, I mean, Frank Quattrone and, and these different people. And it was, and I remember I knew somebody had invested with one of these people and they had this huge lawsuit that they had won from an auto accident, came to me and says, hey, Paul, what do you think of this portfolio? And I looked at it and I said, not much. This is horrible. And what ended up happening is a couple of years later, this person had a lawsuit against one of the people named in this book. And it was for what Markowitz was talking about right there. You know, so often what happens is people get information from people that are selling things. And I think that is right there where a lot of the conflict well, one of the fun, during the financial crisis, I mean, some of the major, major firms out there were called on the carpet for trashing stocks privately that they were touting publicly. They had emails of employees talking, oh, this thing's a dog, but yet, you know, their company has a big buy on it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when we look at where we, you know, where we all came from, you know, commission-based sales, you know, we had the Friday morning meetings. How much did you sell? What were your FYCs? You know, first year commissions. Yeah. AAC. Or AAC. ACC. It was AACs or ACCs. One I, of those we two. had FYCs. It was, yeah. it was in working for a big company. It was first year commissions was, it was what it was all about. You know, so that, that you, know, you look at that and go, we're well, trying to move something. And a lot of times you had one product that paid a little higher commission than another and it was really hard to say, hey, I don't think I want to sell this. I remember, well, life insurance, for example. The commissions on permanent insurance were way, way higher than on term insurance. So who on earth in their right mind would recommend term insurance? You know, whole life insurance. Yeah, the, that whole thing too, the AACs with the uh, broker-dealer were also other parts of your compensation, not only just how much actual dollars you got, but... Mm -hmm. What benefits were paid for? Did you get health insurance? Did you get a match on your 401k? They were all tied to that stuff. So it was all very much focused on moving product as opposed to how can we help these people? Now, so the other part of this question talks about ongoing coaching to help provide discipline, understanding, and a sense of confidence. Here is the deal with that. Markets do not go straight up. I'm sorry to tell you, they don't do that. I don't care if you do everything right Markets don't go straight up. Even if you, you know, diversify as much as you possibly can, even if you own the right types of bonds, you know, they do go in cycles that are unpredictable. And what happens is that when we have things are going up, nobody ever worries. It's always when things go down, did I go down more than I should have? Did I take on more risk? You know, is, is it likely to come back? Is this something that's permanent? Is, you know, are we going into a new paradigm? Uh, you know, so what happens is investors, because of that, they lose faith and they lose confidence 
as some of the worst times. You know, and most of the coaching that I did was really during the 2002 market downturn. Because if you were diversified during 2000, 2001, that was a non-event. You know, the, the tech bubble bursting, that was a non-event if you were diversified. So I didn't really have problems back then because, you know, that's back when I opened the company. I was lucky enough to go into that period of time. It was during 2002 that was a little bit rough. And then I remember, you know, coaching people. I remember one guy calling up and going, I've got to go. you got to move me to the sidelines, Paul. And I go, I said, you're, you're firing me because I'm not going to do this to you. Listen to me closely. I'm not doing this to you. And he goes, you really believe in this stuff, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And then in 2008, that was another rough one. I was on TV all the time going out with Charlie Chase, Kelly Sutton, you know, going on Fox 17. I was going on Chump 5. I remember, you know, Holly Thompson uh, doing interviews with her. Uh, but this is one of those things that I had to coach people through. And I did video after video after video because the reality was that when things get rough, that's when you need coaching and it has to be ongoing education. So that is why I think question number 13 is so important. It has everything to do with what is the job of the advisor? Picking stocks, timing the market? No. Choosing funds based on past performance? No. Coaching you when it gets tough. Yeah, the behavioral guidance really is the one of the major parts and one of the most important things in what we do. I mean, we yes. can spout numbers and things with people all day, but when it's COVID, it's you know late March oh, 2020, yeah. COVID. and things have dropped. That one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, things have dropped 30 percent in just a couple of weeks. Yes, that's when kind of the rubber hits the road, and really trying to help people uh, back to okay, all these things we said at the beginning, how the market works. We got to yes. remind. We got to think this through. <laughs> what's likely to happen? Okay. Short term, things may be rough. What do you expect to happen over time? Yes, uh, yeah, and how do markets work and what's happening underneath the hood? And that's what we did here. I remember when everybody else was shut down, we were doing live radio shows right here in this office, as a matter of fact. Because I, I, first thing I did is I set up, I went and bought the, the equipment that I needed for us to do the show remotely. And that's exactly what we did. And we got into education mode like crazy. And, you know, for the most part, clients stayed really disciplined. There were a couple that didn't, and they kicked themselves because they didn't stay disciplined, but there weren't many. Most of them stayed disciplined. But it was because of that education and coaching that I credit for really, to me, that was the big reason for the success you know, over the past 23, 24 years that, that we've been around here. I remember I sent out a letter at that time, just as kind of the peak of the hysteria. And it was, uh, I just heard back from a client that was, and she was just like, Thank just you. really thankful on what mm -hmm. the letter said and everything and how it made her feel better and all that. And, and that stuff is just makes you feel like a king. I yeah, mean, that's that, when that, you get that, that feedback. That's that is that is the gold, you know, for, for sure. Uh, that's really, really important. So I think that question can't be overemphasized. Next question is, and we talk about algorithms when, you know, software and all that stuff, but there is, a, you know, algorithm and, and tested process for rebalancing a portfolio. Hey folks, I want to tell you something I'm really excited about. My new book, Confident Financial Planning, is finally out. It's in paperback, hardcover, Kindle version, and I actually have an audiobook version of it. Uh, it talks about building your financial castle. I use that throughout the book, talking about your investments, your financial plan is kind of like a castle. You have your savings and your emergency funds. I talk about that, debt, good debt, bad debt. We talk about special goal funds and how to set those things up and how to invest for those types of special things that you might want to do in the future. 
types of retirement accounts, different types of taxation of investment accounts, talk about real estate investing and pros and cons of that, how to project retirement assets, and your moat. You know, that's how you protect your castle. It's the risk management aspect of a financial plan. You want to find out more about that? You go to paulwinkler.com forward slash book to get it. And I hope you enjoy. This next question is a little complicated. You have an algorithm and tested process for rebalancing your portfolio. Algorithm is in the software that's used to determine how to rebalance. There are some simple rules of thumb. I say simple. (laughs) Perish the thought. They're not really simple. Uh, But, you know, there was one study that I like to refer to that actually looked at rebalancing a portfolio where you go based on 25% deviations. And if, if I have two asset classes in my portfolio, so I have, let's say I have 10 asset classes in my portfolio, I have 10% of my money in 10 different areas. So I got 10% in large companies, 10% in small, and 10% in large value, and 10% in international large, and you know, so on and so forth. Just I'm making up stuff here. But if I have 10% in each of these areas, if one thing does way better than the other, like large value stocks do way better than international uh, small companies. And, you know, now it's in, it's not going to be 10% of my money anymore, right? You know, international large value or U.S. large value might be 13% of my portfolio. And international small companies might be now 7% of my portfolio. So one's above by 3%, the other one's under by 3%, what it's supposed to be. It's at 13 instead of 10, and the other one's at 7 instead of 10. You want to buy low, and you want to sell high, and that's what you're doing when rebalancing. You're taking those things that have just been doing really, really well, buying things that are currently cheap, because winners, you know, they're not going to run forever. The things that aren't doing well mm-hmm. are likely to stay down forever. And it sounds like market timing, but you're not doing it based on any kind of emotion or anything like that. It's just, hey... I, the risk of my portfolio has changed. I've got too much of this one. It's at 13%. I got too little of this one. It's at seven. So it's just an unemotional change. Now, how do you determine when to rebalance? Now, a lot of things, if your workplace plans may just rebalance, they let you choose rebalancing annually, semi-annually, quarterly, or something like that, or rebalancing monthly. Now, that's all well and fine. It's better than not rebalancing the portfolio or bringing it back to 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, all the way you know, down. But you know, if you look at the one study showed that if it's 25% deviation, that's optimal. So if one is at 10 and it goes to 12 and a half, which is 25% off, 25% of 10 is two and a half. 10 plus two and a half, 12 and a half. There's the math. Or 10 minus two and a half, seven and a half, then my numbers, I said 13, right? And I said seven. So those are out of balance sufficiently to warrant a rebalance of the portfolio. Okay, so that's where that comes from. Now, if you're putting money in on a regular basis, you'd be smarter to take the new money that you flow in and flow it to the seven and a half, and then you don't have to sell something and buy something else. So that would be another way of doing things. Now you'd have an algorithm. An algorithm is gonna be a whole heck of a lot more complicated than that. But I want you to just recognize that there is academic research out there to show optimal ways of rebalancing a portfolio. It's just the matter, do you have it? Do you know that it's being done is question number 14. 
And if you're going, heck no, not rebalancing at all. And that's the vast majority of portfolios are not being rebalanced at all. Yeah, so many even the employer plans don't even offer anything like that. You have to kind of do it yourself and call them uh, or, you know, that. And even if it's set up to do it automatically, it might need it. It might be out of whack, like according to the numbers you're talking about, a couple times a year. Or it might be a year where it's not out of whack at all, but yet it gets done automatically. Yeah, and so, I, I, so I want somebody to explain to me how it's being rebalanced. And, and if it does, if you just don't, don't even give them a hint, just go. So what is the methodology for the management of the portfolio and rebalancing? How is it being done? And if you hear a bunch of gobbledygook, <laughs> run. <laughs> um, so that's another one. Uh, question 15. Have you measured the total amount of commissions and costs in your portfolio? Uh, most people don't even know what the costs are in the investing portfolio. Uh, they don't even know how to measure them. Uh, they, they don't even understand that the management fee does not include trading costs. Right. There's the visible costs, the costs that you see in the prospectus, but there are the invisible costs, or sometimes I refer to them as explicit and implicit. And implicit. Yes, exactly. I, you know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that referred to securities lending revenue. And it made the point that, do you know that your investment manager might be keeping a lot of this revenue? Well, if they're keeping that revenue, I would look at that and say, that's, that's a cost because they're not giving it to you. you know. So that, that's, a, that's a cost of investing. And that's one way that certain fund companies actually keep their fees artificially low because they get revenue from other sources. That's part of that explicit and implicit. Yeah, you have mutual fund companies that have zero management fees. How do they do that? Well, Ma, they're running a charity. <laughs> no, they're not running a charity. How do they do no zero cost trading? Well, guess what? You're paying for it someplace. And do you know what those expenses are? Do you have an in, do you know fully understand the implications and applications of diversification in your portfolio? Do you know how to apply diversification? Is another one of the questions on here. We kind of hit that with how, how things move with, with and against each other already. So I'll, I'll just jump over that next one. Do you have an investment policy statement? Pensions by law must have an investment policy statement. How do you measure risk? What is the expected return of your portfolio after inflation? What will you put up with? What will you not put up with? How will you actually respond to marketplace volatility? That ought to be spelled out in writing before you ever invest a dime in your investment portfolio. That's, that's question number 17. Another one, I'm going to spend more time, and I, just, I, I want to jump to this next one. This is one of my favorite questions. Question 18. Do you have a clear-cut method for measuring the success or failure of your portfolio? I do this with people all the time. I look at parts of the portfolio and say, how did this section of your portfolio do? Not versus this section over here, if it's a different area of the market. I have people that, well, look, you're, this portfolio didn't do this and didn't, you know, this, this area of the market did better than the portfolio at large. Of course it did. You know, if that area of the market had the best returns over the past five years, and you look at only that area of the market, of course it did better than diversification. No, you look at each section. Now, for example, I used this example earlier. I said large international stocks and large US stocks had the same long-term return between the 1950s and now. 
If you look at that over the long run, they had the same return. So if you compared them to each other, you'd be indifferent between them. But if you're looking at the 1970s and international trounced large U.S. stocks, it would have not been fair to compare the return of large U.S. stocks versus large international because international did way better. That wouldn't have been a fair comparison because they're two different, it's apples and oranges, so to speak. Now, if you're looking at, let's say, large U.S. stocks versus large international in the early 80s, it wouldn't have been fair to compare either because large U.S. did better. And that would have been an unfair comparison. That would have caught, why is that important? Well, and what I'm thinking is with a frame of reference and what are you comparing it to? And then people are bombarded every night on the news with what the S&P do, what the Dow do, what the NASDAQ do, and maybe what their wife's 401k did, something like that. But the comparisons they have, very few are actually valid to what their portfolio should be doing. It might have higher, you know, they should, oh, how come I didn't make as much money? Or, wow, I did really good compared to that. Yeah. But, but they don't have valid comparisons and they're not given good information. And, and it's a problem because what happens if I have one thing that did better than the other, I am tempted to throw out the thing that did poorly, when in fact, that thing that did poorly might be the thing that does better in the future. So that, that's, that's the reason that is so stinking important. You've got to know whether each part of your portfolio did what it was supposed to do. Then you can kind of relax and go, everything's going the way it ought to be going. Question 19, because we're, we're going to run out of time here, is can you identify cultural messages and personal mindsets about money that can destroy your peace of mind? We don't recognize how culture affects how we invest, how we spend money, what we do. And you know, so, so what ends up happening is culture drives us and then we end up failing as investors. And finally, question number 20, shifting from a personal experience of money as being scarce to abundance mode. And it's just understanding these types of things. So I think it's really critical. Want to learn more? Go to paulwinkler.com. That is how you learn more about what we do and how we teach, because I think an educated investor is more confident investor, more confident investor can be a more successful investor. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more competent investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., PWI, an investment advisor registered in the state of Tennessee. PWI does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation. This information is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any securities.